Is your child struggling with a specific subject or need help with homework? Are they asking questions that you're not sure you can fully answer? IXL Learning is an online learning program for kids. It covers math, language arts, science, and social studies. IXL is designed. This program will improve your kids' grades. Studies done in almost every state in the country. The kids who had IXL are consistently doing better. Powered by advanced algorithms, IXL gives the right help to each kid no matter the age or personality. And it doesn't have to eat up all your time. One subscription gets you everything for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. So don't miss out. One in four students in the U.S. are learning with IXL. IXL is used in 95 of the top 100 school districts in the U.S. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com audio. Visit IXL.com audio to get the most effective learning program out there at the best price. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash recommend today. Hey, folks, this is Kevin. Oh, I'll tell you, I am very, very sick right now. But the show must go on. So... On this week's episode, you will hear David Wraith. And my wife says, baby, you would be the best male prostitute. (laughs) That and more. But before that, I want to talk about one of my favorite new online stores, Thrive Market. I personally have had such a great experience getting my food, kitchen supplies, bathroom products, your grocery shopping, you know, at thrivemarket.com. And the selection is the cream of the crop. It's the most organic, non-toxic, BPA-free, non-GMO, no artificial ingredients sort of products at 25 to 50% off shipped right to your door. And you can do price comparisons right there on the site to see the retail price compared to Whole Foods or whatever it is. Any place that you would normally go out to do your grocery shopping. Thrive Market cuts out the middleman so they can pass the savings right on to their members. And the box comes really quickly. I got myself some Laura bars, some green superfood mix, some grain-free cat food for donkey. I got soups and soaps. I'm all stocked up in the bathroom now. You can do very specific searches on their site. Like if you're vegan or gluten-free, you can curate only products that fit your needs. So you'll get $60 of free organic grocery credits plus free shipping and a 30-day trial membership if you go to thrivemarket.com risk. And don't forget their prices are already 25 to 50% below retail, you're going to be amazed at the quality and the selection at thrivemarket.com slash risk for $60 off and free shipping and a 30-day trial membership at thrivemarket.com slash risk. Also, these days you can get practically everything you want on demand, like this podcast. You can listen whenever you want when it's convenient for you. So why are you still taking trips to the post office to mail letters and packages when you can get postage on demand with Stamps.com? Stamps.com, you can access all the amazing services of the post office, 
right from your desk 24-7 when it's convenient for you. You can buy and print official U.S. postage for any letter, any package using your own computer and printer, and then the mail carrier picks it up. So click, print, mail, you're done. Couldn't be easier. We've used stamps.com at risk and the story studio for years now, and we love it. And right now you can use risk for this special offer. It includes up to $55 free postage, a digital scale, and a four-week trial. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com before you do anything else. Click on the radio microphone at the top of the homepage and type in risk. That's stamps.com. Enter risk. Now here's the show. Hello, kids. This is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Mini Groove Orchestra behind me now. You know, I think that my uh, immune system must have been a little bit battered from all the traveling I've been doing. Uh, I seem to have gotten some sort of stomach bug, uh, and man, it has just wiped me out. And I've got a cold at the same time. So yeah, like total fatigue and and uh, constant trips to the bathroom, a very, very upset stomach, fever, <laughs> sneezing. I mean, I am just a goddamn wreck right now. <laughs> uh, yes, but here we go. Let's dive in. You know, the stories are good. <laughs> Your host is not very well, but the stories today are very, very good. These are three stories from our St. Louis show that we did a couple weeks back. Before anything else, though, I want to wish a happy birthday to Armita, your friend Carolina has purchased the Risk book for you. So you should know that that is coming soon. Two of our fans who live in Sweden. In a little bit, we are going to hear from David Wraith, who is the co-founder of Sex Positive STL. But before that, we're going to hear from comedian Rafe Williams, who you can find at rafewilliams.com. That's R-A-F-E. And here he is now with a story we call The A-Team. Hey everyone, how are you? Yeah. I'm going to tell you a story tonight. A story is near and dear to my heart. It's for me, it's for you, but most importantly, it's for a guy named Mike Simpson. He's on the number four bus in Oakland right now. He just got high with his friend Jerry and he's on his way to a dead-end job. And He needs to hear this to know that his life can turn around. 
I'm just bullshitting, but if this makes it to the podcast, <laughs> that's going to freak one guy out so much for just a couple seconds that I wanted to do that. <laughs> I am going to tell you a story, though. When I was a kid, I had an 18 backpack. It was badass. It was gray. It had red zippers, secret pockets all over it. It had the panel van, red military-grade lettering that said the A-team on the side. Came with a tin lunchbox with all four members of the A-team on it. Hannibal, Murdoch, Face, and B.A. Baracus, played by the incomparable actor of our time, Mr. T. <laughs> and he was alone on the thermos with his mohawk and his flexed muscles and his gold chains and an earring that looked like a goddamn dream catcher. <laughs> it was tight. And I got that backpack for my birthday, and I was at the store with my mom. She was a sweet lady. We didn't have a lot of money. And there was one other gift that I wanted, and it was a speaking spell. In 1985, that was a hot-ticket item. Do you guys remember speaking spells? Made famous by the movie E.T. Uh, when he used it to phone home, it was a large red calculator-like device about the weight of a modern-day laptop computer. Uh, but it was cutting edge in 1985, and you could type in a word, and if you spelled it correctly, a crazy robot voice would be like, you are correct. <laughs> if you spelled it wrong, it would say, please try again. And I was torn. My mom's like, I can't afford both. You have to get one or the other. And I chose the A-team. I chose the A-team. And you know why? Because I was dealing with a bully at school. And in the 80s, everything you watched, from the A-team to G.I. Joe to after-school specials to the Karate Kid... The advice about bullies was pretty much the same. You stand up to them, you show them you're not gonna take their shit, they learn a lesson, life goes on. And every episode of the A-Team was all about that. They were military mercenaries from LA. And if you could get a hold of them in the underground, they could help you get the job done. I'm like, that's pretty cool. So I think I want the A-Team to help me get the job done. Now my bully in school was a kid named Jesse. And Jesse was a veteran, a grizzled veteran of bullies at the time because he'd already done two tours in second grade and was on his second tour in third grade when I got him. <laughs> so he was a lot bigger and stronger than a lot of people in our class. And Jesse was what I like to call a timeshare bully. Uh, he didn't just get me, he got everybody in class. But I lived two blocks away from Jesse, so I got some special attention on the weekends that other people didn't get. Lucky me. I went home. And I'd watched a specifically inspiring episode of the A-Team. And I concocted a plan. I wasn't going to take Jesse's shit anymore. And as fate would have it, the next day of school, after I concocted my plan, was a rainy day. And back in the 80s, when you had a rainy day recess, they just locked you in a classroom like a bunch of animals. So we were all trapped in a classroom with this sociopath. It was like one hall monitor lady. It was like Alcatraz with no guards. It was fucked up, people. <laughs> So while he was terrorizing my classmates, I put my plan into action. I took a Prairie Farms milk crate and I pushed it in the corner, lodged it against the corner for leverage up next to these blue lockers in the front of the loom where we kept our book bags, right? Because I knew if I was going to confront my bully, I had to be as close to my backpack as I could because my 18 backpack was my source of power. <laughs> and Jesse was terrorizing one of my classmates and I motioned to him to come over to the lockers to put my plan into action. And when he got over close enough, I balled my little fist up, I summoned all my power, and I said a killer line I'd been working on since the night before. And I said, Jesse, my classmates and I have had enough of your shit. 
pretty dope, right? <laughs> pretty big deal. Third grade. I was breaking down some barriers. And I swung with all my might. My fist cut the air, and I hit Jesse right in his eyeball. And he went down, and I could practically hear the AT music. Ba, 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 ba. And I was like, how's it feel? And I had to stand on the milk crate because he was so much bigger than me. And he went down to one knee, so now he was about my height. And I was like, how's it feel, Jesse? And Jesse turned, and he looked at me. And then Jesse laughed so hard, guys. He laughed like I just told him the funniest joke in the world, and I realized that my life was over. But what was weird is he didn't do anything. He went back to his seat. He sat down. He didn't say a word the rest of the day. He treated everybody with respect, and he was cool. And I was like, holy shit. It worked. I showed him how it feels to get bullied. <laughs> he learned a lesson. And now my whole classmates are all safe. I'm like the fifth member of the A-team, basically, right now. <laughs> Feeling good. Now, Jesse and I rode the same bus, so 3 o'clock, we get on the bus, we go home. And I came from a small town, so we didn't have a ton of bus stops. We all got picked up at the post office in my hometown. So everybody's parents would gather around to come pick you up. So there was a nice crowd at the bus stop, and I noticed on the bus that Jesse sat in the front seat, which was weird, because usually Jesse sat in that little seat in the back and defended it with blood. Because any time in the 80s or 90s, you can pretty much pick up on the social hierarchy of a school by where people sat on the bus. We all know that. I was a middle-of-the-bus type guy. I didn't want to sit in the front, and I didn't want to sit too close to the back because I didn't want to fight. I just wanted to sit in the middle. But Jesse sat in the front, which should have been a red flag. But I took it as further evidence that I had tamed a wild beast. So he got off the bus immediately when the bus stopped at the post office. And I saw my mother, and I... Got excited. I couldn't wait to tell her the news, how I had conquered the day. And I started to get off the bus, got out, made it through the doors, waved at my mom, and I started to shimmy off my little A-team backpack, as you do when you're a kid. And as it slid down my arms in the back, about the moment the two straps hit my wrists and pinned my arms behind my back, I looked over, and through the glass pane of the bus door, I could see Jesse's face, and he had a maniacal smile. Because here's the deal. On TV, in the A-Team and after-school specials, you stand up to your bully, they learn a lesson, and they leave you alone. But in real life, your bully hides behind the bus door and hits you in the face with a goddamn speaking spell. <laughs> so, about the time I had <laughs> my little wrist pinned behind me, all I saw was Jesse's arm and a red blur coming from my face, and the last thing I heard before I blacked out was, you are correct. <laughs> And then my little knees buckled and I blacked the fuck out. But I couldn't help but be a little proud of Jesse. I knew he had flunked three times, so whatever word he put in the speaking spell before he jammed in my face, he got it right. He got it right. So I blacked out. Now, my mom, who is a wonderful woman, she's a mama bear, she defends her cubs. She was at the bus stop waiting to pick me up. She couldn't believe what she just saw, so she accosted Jesse, and she's like, how dare you hit my son? Who do you think you are? And she took the speaking spell out of his hand. But what my mom didn't know is Jesse's mom was also at the bus stop. And Jesse's mom was a six-foot-one Austrian woman who was built like a brick shithouse. And bullying, turns out, was a family tradition. 
So when I woke up from my little speaking spell slumber, I woke up and cleared the blood and tears from my little seven-year-old eyes to see my mom just getting fucking worked by this giant Austrian woman. Getting pummeled. I'm not talking about... She didn't even put up a fight, guys. It was bad. Like, it was every time... And, like, German's such a hard language. I don't speak it. But to see the person you love the most in the world getting punched is hard. It's even worse when every time the fist hits her, you hear, Ich bin ein Uschlin in Heigel und It was kind of like that scene from Rocky Four when Drago fights Apollo Creed. I don't know if you guys are familiar. It was pretty one-sided. Eventually, the parents came and broke everything up. And Jesse and his mom scooted down the sidewalk. And my mom and I were left to lay there on the dirt in front of the post office in our hometown and humiliated and shamed. I'm covered in blood. My 18 backpack's covered in blood. I'm like, where the fuck were you guys on that one? Ba, 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 ba. Oh. And I looked up, and my mom's eye had already started to swell. There's blood everywhere. I mean, we just got our asses handed to us in front of the whole town, basically. But for some reason, in the precious moments between me getting the tears cleared from my eyes and the dust settling and people leaving us alone, we both started to laugh. There was like a huge sense of relief. I couldn't really explain what it was, but she just picked me up. We held hands, and she walked me home to our single wine trailer. She took me in the bathroom and she cleaned me up. While she was cleaning me up, she was like, I know it hurts, right? And your nose is hurting. I was like, yeah, it hurts a lot. And she's like, but do you still feel a little bit of a sense of relief? I was like, yeah, mom, actually I do. And she's like, that's because Jesse doesn't have power over you anymore. You stood up to him and he did the worst thing he could do to you and you survived it. And sometimes that's all it's about is being able to survive it. And we knew that because my mom and I had been surviving for a long time. We'd been surviving a much worse bully and he lived under our own roof. My dad was a really abusive guy and he got home from work at four o'clock. So every day I got off school at three and my dad would get home at four and you'd feel this sense of dread come over our house. You'd feel it on your chest. It was like a weight. So really, I only had a one-hour reprieve every day between bullies at school and bullies at home. Now, my dad's six foot four, 270 pounds. He's still a huge guy today. He's bigger than I am. I'm a pretty big guy, and he still dwarfs me to this day. So you can imagine how that feels when you're seven. Now, he would come home, no matter what mood he was in, my mom would try to steer him away from me, but most of the times it ended in a pretty severe beating. And I can say this, I won't tell you whether or not you should spank your kids, but I will tell you this, if you beat your kids every day for everything, regardless of it's burning down the neighbor's house or because they forgot to wash a spoon and a fork, it loses its disciplinary value. And it was more than discipline to him. Like there was kind of a sadistic side, I thought, to it. Uh, he wore one of those big leather redneck belts the kind you get your name etched in the back of, but we were too poor. I guess he couldn't afford it. He must have been saving up for that. But he would take it off. And some days he would come home, and he wouldn't even ask if I was good or not. He would just be like, I know you did something wrong today, and he'd whip that belt off, and it would make a pretty intimidating noise when it would clear the denim of his hustler jeans. And he would fold it in half, and he would hold the buckle and the hold end 
and he would hold the looped end in his hands and he would push his hands close together and he would make it pop like a bullwhip. Like he was sending a message of uh, what was to come. And it would scare me. I was a child. It would scare the shit out of me. And he had a big, giant, bear-like paw that he would wrap around your arm and he would hold you in place while he took the beating on you. And sometimes you didn't know. You didn't know if it was going to be three or five. And he tried to do that move where you move your ass like a little kid. And sometimes you get it in the back. Sometimes you get it in the back of the legs. Either way, it was pretty brutal. He was a little sneakier about how he uh, abused my mom. I would find out years later, he'd always take her in the bedroom, and I would find out years later in a tearful confession that he would pinch her under the arms and choke her and hold her down on the bed. That was hard for me to hear even as an adult. He never did it in front of us because I guess he thought he was classy in that way. (laughs) What a guy. But that's what I had to look forward to, and I had about 45 minutes until he was going to be home, and I did not know how he was going to take the news of this 0-2 thrashing we took for the day. So he got home, and my mom tried to spin the story as best she could for him. He didn't take it well. He was upset. He was angry. He wasn't angry that we got into a fight. He was angry that I lost because he thought his kids were an extension of him. So he was like, you fight that boy today and you lost? I said, yeah. Can you not see that? And he's like, we're going to fight him again tomorrow. And if you don't, and I find out you had an opportunity to, the ass kicking you get at home is going to be 10 times worse than one he'll ever give you. Because I guess that was his idea of parenting. (laughs) Country justice, swamp justice. So I didn't know what to do. And he turned his attention towards my mom. They started to argue. So I went outside. I was upset. I went back in our backyard or as I back trailer area backyard's a stretch and I was back there trying to figure out what I wanted to do and wouldn't you know it Jesse had already made it home got on his huffy bicycle and made his way down to my yard to drive up and down the sidewalk and taunt me and he was driving past and he was giving me the finger and he was cussing me out he's like I'm gonna kill you and I'm gonna kill your fucking mom and I'm gonna kill your fucking dog I make bombs you know I was like that's weird But I was so upset that I didn't know what to do and I just had an impulsive moment. I knew my mom was getting yelled at. He had just threatened to hurt the person I loved the most in my life. I knew my dad wouldn't make me fight him again so I just picked up a stick in the yard, a fallen branch that was about as tall as I was. And all of a sudden I was a Zulu tribesman. I didn't even think about it. I just threw it as hard as I could. And in a stroke of luck, this stick went through the front spokes of Jesse's bicycle while he was going full speed. And when that tire made one revolution and hit the crossbar on his red huffy, he went assholes over elbows over the front of that bike and ate a face full of fucking gravel. And I had won the day and I was like, that's some A-team shit right there. That's some A-team shit. That's right. And that feeling lasted for 10 to 15 seconds. Because Jesse got up and he was pissed. And he grabbed the stick that I threw through his spokes and he started to run it along the edge of the road. And I was like, oh, this dude's fucked up. He's concussed. This isn't good. But he wasn't concussed. What he was doing was sharpening the end of that stick. And then he started to chase me around my trailer. And we must have made around 13 or 14 revolutions. So when Eminem says two trailer park boys went round the outside, round the outside, I get it. It hits close to home. I get it. 
But I didn't know what to do because I didn't want to go inside because I didn't want to have to face my dad. I was literally trapped between two bullies. And I didn't know what to do. And eventually, Jesse caught me and he stabbed me in the shoulder with a stick. And he ran away and I cried. And I ran inside and luckily my mother was able to sneak me past my father so he didn't see me crying. He didn't know what happened. She took me back to our bathroom to do triage for the second time that day. Clean up my new wound. And I could tell that she'd been crying too. And I realized while I was outside dealing with my sociopathic bully, she was inside dealing with hers. And I cried. And I told her, Mom, I don't know how much longer I can take this. I'm tired of feeling hurt. And I'm tired of feeling sad. And I'm sick and tired of feeling sick and tired. And she said, me too, honey. I understand. And I know that boy picks on you. And I know that your dad hurts you. And I'm sorry I can't protect you. She said something very profound. And she said that, unfortunately, in real life, bullies don't learn anything. They just retaliate. But no matter what happens to you, you can't let a bully turn you into a bully. Because the fist begets the spear. And we both cried for a little while. And then we laughed because we realized we were 0-4 for the day. <laughs> but I think what my mom was trying to say is that when you grow up in a house with abuse like that, you really get two kinds of people. You get the type of person that emulates and imitates that behavior and becomes the oppressor that they hated. And you get a type of person that refuses to become that and just learns how to survive until they can get out of that situation. And it would be quite a few years before my mom and I got out of that situation, but I know that that was the day we decided which kind of people we were going to be. And I realized my mom was my A-team. And that's my story. Thank you. Have you ever had this experience where you step outside of your body and you look at yourself from a third person perspective and you say to yourself, you have lost your motherfucking mind. You have lost all control of your life. It's not just me. 
Okay. It happened to me. So nine-ish years ago, I meet this incredible woman with this beautiful head of gray hair who would become my wife. Her name is Elaine. And I was 37, she was 59. We have an open relationship. I date other people, she dates other people, which everyone assumes was my idea. <laughs> I am here to tell you that on our very first date, my 59-year-old suburban mother-of-two wife-to-be insisted that if we were going to have a relationship, it was going to be an open relationship. And we fall madly in love. Years before we get married, even with both of us dating other people, I date other people, she dates other people, she dates guys younger than me, which I did not see coming. <laughs> we spent all of our weekends together. And my favorite part is sitting across the table from her on Sunday mornings, reading the paper, watching her read the paper, because she looks so beautiful when she's focused. I took so many pictures of my wife just sitting at a table, reading the paper, and they're among my favorite pictures of her. One of my favorite things about my wife is she supports all the crazy shit that I want to do. Like, for years, I waited for her to say, no, David, now that's too much. That's too far. And she never said it. So, fun fact, one of my best friends, we'll call her Kendra, <laughs> is a prostitute. And not only is she a prostitute, but she teaches workshops for people who want to enter into prostitution. Now, ordinarily these workshops are for women only, but once she decided to do a men's only workshop called How to Be a Sex Worker. Thank you. <laughs> and I wanted to go. Not because I wanted to be a sex worker, but out of curiosity and to support my friend. So I asked my wife, and not only was she all for it, but she wanted me to go, and she wanted me to come right home afterwards and tell her everything. <laughs> so I have no frame of reference for what a male prostitute looks like. I'm picturing like Richard Gere and American Gigolo. So I'm expecting to walk into a room full of guys who look like Richard Gere and American Gigolo. What I walked into looked much more like the waiting room at the DMV. Like, out of 20 guys, 19 of them looked like they were waiting to apply for personalized license plates for their sport utility vehicle. You had 20 guys, 19 looked like they might have trouble giving their dicks away for free. The 20th guy looked like he had a future in sex work. By the way, if you were at that workshop and you're hearing this story right now, you're the 20th guy. So I'm sitting there in this workshop on how to be a sex worker just to support my friend, and I'm listening to her talk, and I'm thinking, huh, huh, hmm, I could maybe do that. So I go home, and I tell my wife all about it, and I say, honey, I think I could be a male prostitute. And my wife says, baby, you would be the best male prostitute. <laughs> now, my wife is a product designer, so I tell her 
I thinking about being a male prostitute, she whips out a pad and a pen and starts taking notes on how I should position myself, branding, marketing. That's love, right? That's support, right? So two things happen. My wife is diagnosed with stage two breast cancer and not very long after, I lose my job and I'm unemployed for the first time in 15 years. So this lark about being a male prostitute all of a sudden becomes kind of a viable way of making extra money while I'm unemployed and caring for my wife. I remember my very first trick. I go to this apartment where I'm gonna meet my trick I am so nervous, I've never done anything like this, and I am high out of my mind on weed. (laughs) I'm waiting for my trick to arrive, and I get a text message from my wife that says, you got this. (laughs) That's love. So, after about a year and a half of lumpectomies, mastectomies, radiation, chemotherapy, it becomes painfully obvious that my wife is not going to survive her cancer. So I quit doing sex work, I quit my little part-time coffee house job, and I devote myself full-time to caring for my wife in the last months of her life. She dies in January of 2017. Whenever people would see me out socially in the immediate aftermath of my wife's death, they say, oh, you're holding up so well. Oh, you look so good. And I appreciated that, but what very few people saw was for every day they saw me out socially, I'm spending three, maybe four days not leaving my house, not brushing my teeth, not showering, barely getting out of bed. It was a struggle. Every day is a struggle. And after my wife died, I start doing a lot of drugs. I'm smoking weed every day. I'm doing mushrooms. I'm doing ecstasy. I'm having sex with everyone. It's just real like sex, drugs, and suicidal depression. I make some questionable decisions. I make some decent decisions. I decide to go back to doing sex work probably too soon. And I decide to have two medical procedures. I decide to get laser vision correction surgery because I'd worn glasses all my life. And I decide to get what's called a priapus shot. Is anyone familiar with the priapus shot? Anyone, anyone? Priapus shot is an erectile dysfunction treatment where they draw blood from your arm, they spin it down in a centrifuge, and they re-inject it into five sites in your penis. Which, as a 40-something sex worker, I think is a good career investment. (laughs) Because sex work is kind of like being a professional athlete. And, you know, when you're in your 20s, you're like the rookie starting pitcher who can just go up in the first inning and start whipping out 90-mile-per-hour fastballs. And when you're in your 40s, you're more like the veteran relief pitcher who's on human growth hormone and scuffing the balls with emery boards. Like, any performance enhancement you can get, you're going to take, right? So I go in to get my laser vision correction surgery, and the guy doing my intake wears glasses. 
which I take as a bad omen. And he tells me that for 14 days after surgery, I have to wear goggles to bed, I have to wear goggles in the shower, and I absolutely cannot exercise or break a sweat. Because if I get sweat in my eyes, I can get an eye infection. And then he pauses, he looks me dead in the eye and says, and you don't want an eye infection. And I know he means it because he says it in that way that white people in rural Missouri tell me to be careful. (laughs) Like they say, you be careful now. And I go, I will. And then they grab my arm and go, no. (laughs) You be careful now. (laughs) And I think, should I just get out of this town? So I know... So I know I don't want an eye infection. I know I got to wear goggles to bed. I know I got to wear goggles in the shower. I know I can't break a sweat. The question I really want to ask that I'm too embarrassed to ask is, do I need to wear goggles while having sex? Specifically, do I need to wear goggles while eating pussy or eating ass? Also, how would wearing goggles while eating ass even work? Because these goggles are not terribly flexible. If she clenches her ass cheeks too hard, could she break my goggles? Because that seems like an eye injury waiting to happen. So I'm wearing my goggles when I have sex. My regular partners, they're fine with it. They know about my surgery. My girlfriend actually thinks it's a turn on because when we're in bed together and I strap on the goggles, she knows that there are only two possibilities and they're both good. So it's day 13 out of 14 and I have a first date, a real date, not a client. And we go back to my place, and I don't want to explain to this woman on this first date why I have to wear goggles to eat her pussy. So I'm thinking to myself, okay, I only got to wear the goggles for 14 days. It's day 13. It's probably fine. So I go down on her without my goggles. And I get an eye infection. I get an eye infection so bad, they give me Vicodin for it. Because my eyes are so sensitive to light, I cannot leave my house in the daytime without sunglasses and Vicodin. I can't even look in my refrigerator. When I'm hungry, I have to close my eyes, look away from the refrigerator, open the door, reach in, feel around for the food that I then have to cook and eat in the dark. I spend an entire weekend in almost total darkness. So right around the time I'm recovering from my eye infection, I have scheduled to get my erectile dysfunction treatment and, as luck would have it, my first trick since my wife's passing. I go to the erectile dysfunction clinic. The nurse who does my intake has a flaccid penis, which I take as a bad sign. Um, I'm just kidding. She was hard as a rock. And now I've learned my lesson about not asking the right questions before a medical procedure. So I ask the nurse, what is the recovery time? How soon can I have sex after this procedure? And she says, oh, there's no recovery time. You can have sex almost immediately. And I say to her, that's great because I have to turn a trick in like three hours. (laughs) And she laughed because she thought I was joking. So they give me this cream, I numb up my dick, they draw the blood from my arm, they spin it down in the centrifuge, they get this gigantic fucking needle, and they give me five injections in my dick. 
Then they give me these like gauze uh, underwear because my dick's still bleeding a little bit, which the doctor assures me the bleeding will stop in time for my trick. And the doctor tries to upsell me on this penis pump because apparently to maximize the effect of the injections, you need to start using this penis pump right away. And it was really expensive. And I'm like, joke's on you, doctor. I'm a male sex worker. I already have one. (laughs) So I go to the apartment where I'm waiting to meet my trick. I get stupid high on weed because I haven't been working for a while and I'm nervous. And then I realize the joke is on me because I left my penis pump at home. So my trick is on her way. I have to get in my car, way too high to drive, drive home, get my penis pump, get back, pump myself up in time for my trick. In my haste, I hit a parked car. I look at the car, I don't think the damage warrants trying to find the owner and swapping insurance information, so I just keep going because I'm really in a hurry. Which is a nice way of saying, I leave the scene of an accident. You know, like a crime. So... (laughs) I get home, I grab my penis pump, I come running out to my car, and it's only then that I see that the entire passenger side of my car is covered in streaks of black paint. The passenger side of my white Toyota Prius with vanity plates is covered in streaks of black paint from the black SUV that I hit and left the scene of the accident. So I have to go back to the scene of the crime to turn my trick. So I get a shop towel from the trunk of my car and I start buffing the paint out frantically and that's when I step outside my body, I look at myself from a third person point of view and I say to myself, you have lost your goddamn mind (laughs) because I am on my knees getting rid of the evidence with one hand, holding a penis pump in the other in my suburban driveway in broad fucking daylight. (laughs) And I asked myself, what if someone had called 911? What if the police had recognized a white Toyota Prius with vanity plates covered in black paint from an accident that you left the scene of? What could you possibly say to the officer? Well, officer, in my defense, I'm really high. I'm a recent widow. I'm a little distracted because I got five injections in my penis today. And I'm in a hurry because I'm late to turn a trick. I'm a prostitute. I've had some run-ins with the St. Louis Police Department. I tell you, that would not have worked. And I realize that I have turned into one of those people that you read about in the paper and then completely disregard as a human being. Like the headline would say, drug-addled male prostitute arrested for hit and run. (laughs) And you'd say, oh, fuck that guy, and turn the page. (laughs) And that's when I realized I have lost complete control of my life. That was just over a year ago. I would love to tell you that I'm doing much better now. I'm not. It's a struggle. It's a struggle every day. As of a week ago, I'm back in therapy. So there's that. And 
I have retired from sex work, but I am still willing to entertain any reasonable offers. This is Risk. This is Foster, the people behind me now. And we just heard from David Wraith. You can find David at DavidWraith.com. That's W-R-A-I-T-H. Now, listen, a lot of you guys at these tour dates that we've been doing have come up to me and showed that you pre-ordered the book and I signed a little book plate for you. Uh, but you should also email me at Kevin at show.com and let me know what your name is so that I can read it at the end of the show. Here's the thing. People are telling me they pre-ordered the book on Twitter, via Facebook Messenger, just, you know, in passing in conversation. The only way I can keep track of who's all pre-ordering the book so I can sing your names at the end of the show is if you email me at Kevin at show.com. How do you pre-order the Risk book? You go to theriskbook.com or even easier, you can just text to the number 900-900, the word risk, and that'll set you right up into the pre-ordering process. The book is going to be absolutely fabulous and we need as many pre-orders as possible. So get multiple copies for your friends and all. It's at theriskbook.com. And if you live in any one of these cities, we need your story pitches. You could be a part of our upcoming shows in Boston, San Francisco, Detroit, Chicago, Minneapolis, Baltimore, Washington, D.C., and many more. Just keep paying attention to the end hosting. After the last story of every show, I list where we're coming next. And you can always find us at the submissions page at risk-show.com. Lots of tips on how to pitch us there on the submissions page at risk-show.com. Our final story comes to us from someone who is making her second appearance on the show. This is Amy Brooks, who is a nurse by trade living in the St. Louis area. Here is Amy now with a story we call Sundays with Zola. 
So I don't know where you were in 1973. I was five, and I was pretty much running the world I lived in. I had two parents who just, you know, were amazed they had created me and thought everything I did was fantastic and wonderful, and I believe that 100%. I was a true believer. And in 1973, we had two big events that changed our lives forever. The first event was in March of 1973, and that is when my mom was going to have a baby. So I wanted one of two things. Number one, I would really like a sister, and if I couldn't have a sister, then I really, really desperately wanted a monkey. <laughs> because there was a bait shop in town, and they had a monkey, and it was just so cool. And I just thought a monkey would be the greatest thing. So March of 1973 rolls around, and mom goes to the hospital, and some stuff happens there. And Dad goes to pick her up, and it was a boy. I had never anticipated that it could be a boy, but I was trying to cope with my disappointment um, of, you know, my not-a-monkey brother and <laughs> pull myself together. And Then in June of that year, we had an unplanned event that would change our lives. In June of that year, my dad went to work. He was an over-the-road truck driver. And he was the kind of dad that woke you up on Saturday mornings to watch cartoons and just was, so he was the fun one. My mom's like super mature and practical. You know, which the world needs a little of that too. So he goes to work and around noon I am playing on the front porch and I see my grandparents. My mom and dad's parents pull up and they should have both been at work and they had the pastor with them and I knew then this was a bad sign and when my mom saw them I could hear her saying no, 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 no. And I knew then that our lives were changing. I just didn't know how. And they came in the house and they took the baby from my mom and they told her that my dad, who was an over-the-road truck driver, had had an accident and had died. And I didn't have a real firm grasp of what died meant, but based on the fact that she was crying and wailing like something being attacked by an animal and fainting when she wasn't crying or wailing, I knew something terrible had happened and I was kind of trying to process this and all these people started showing up at our house and pretty quickly somebody packed us a bag and we left my house that day and went to live with my maternal grandparents and I never went back to my old house. We just moved in with my grandparents and got through the funeral and, and the life in my grandparents' house was kind of heavy. It was sad there and everybody else was sad there and it just felt like it was hard to breathe and like the air was thick and you know, there was this not a monkey brother that needed to be taken care of all the time because he totally didn't get this whole thing and was just oblivious to what was going on. And, and I was trying to figure out my new world. And the one bright spot that would come would be on Friday afternoons when I would get off the bus at my house and my dad's parents would be there to pick me up. And we would go down to their house. And people were sad at their house about my dad dying, but they weren't, it wasn't the same oppressive grief that was going on at my house. And Friday night would be a blast. Anybody here ever played Wahoo? Marble game? No? Sorry, it's for you. <laughs> kind of childhood did you have? But they were, it's this, this board game with, you know, racially inappropriate Indians painted on it, and we just had a great time, and we'd play card games, and, you know, it just, it was a blast, and all my cousins would be there. And then on Saturday morning, it was just kind of a free-for-all, and, and then the cousins would go home on Saturday afternoons let's kind of go back to what their lives were and then I would just have my grandma to myself. 
at that point in my life, that was kind of intoxicating. You know, it was just all this like one-on-one attention and she did wanted to do whatever I wanted to do and we made cookies. If you've never had a chocolate chip and bacon cookie, you're not living. <laughs> and we would, you know, we could like stay up late. My mom would have hated that and we just had a great time. And then the next morning we'd get up, we all went to church. My grandpa was the song leader. I know you're thinking the ability to sing is like important in that role. Turns out it's not. Um, <laughs> not if you're Baptist. Nope. And uh, then we'd come home from church, and my grandma would make this. She made three meals a day from scratch every day. And she would make this huge meal. And then when she would start to clean it up, then I was supposed to go gather up my stuff and get ready to go home. And, and while that was happening, she had this kitty cat clock on the wall that the eyes moved and the tails, remember that? That kept time of the seconds. And as I would get right my stuff ready and I would listen to that clock the, the sound it made that clicking noise would just get louder and louder and pretty soon there'd be like this cold hard knot in my stomach and I'd know what was coming and dreaded it and hoped it wouldn't happen but pretty soon we would get in the car and she was four foot eleven so she'd drive like this down the highway and we'd head back towards my house in town and my heart would pound and I would think don't do it this time, don't do it this time, don't do it this time, because halfway between my grandma's house in the country and my grandma's house in town was the local Marcus Memorial Cemetery, which is where my daddy was buried. And so pretty soon we would, I would feel us getting closer, and it was kind of like that little golden book. There's a monster at the end of this book. Do you guys remember that one? With Grover, and he's like, don't turn another page, don't turn another page. And I was kind of like that because I was like, don't, don't, get, don't do it. Don't get any closer. Don't get any closer. And pretty soon she'd turn the blinker on. And the next thing I'd know, I'd be turning onto this gravel road that ran up alongside the cemetery. And we would turn on the third street. And then we would park by a tree. And then we would count over four graves to my daddy's grave. And she had this little stool that was like a lawn chair material but it was just a stool and she would sit that in front of the grave and she would sit there and for a little while I would be off her radar and it's one of those cemeteries that just has flat stones and all the flat stones have this metal vase that's built into it and you pull it up and then you can put flowers in it so I would like try to keep out of her line of vision and I would run around all these stones and I would pull all these things up, and when you pull them up, they make this sucking noise, and every time I did that, I thought, one of these days, the corpse is just gonna be sucked right out of there, and it's gonna shoot up out of this hole, and it's gonna be so cool. But it crossed, every time I did this, it crossed my mind that I was this far away from dead body. And um, I would sit them all up, like 25 of them. I'm sure when the groundskeeper came in on Monday, he was like, sweet, Amy's been here. So, Pretty soon though, she would see me and she would, I would register for her again and she'd call me over and she would hold me and she would cry and she would talk about my daddy because there's nothing a grieving child likes more than for you to list all the things she's missing. Like, he was the best daddy and he just loved you and he loved your mom and you know, of all my kids, he was the one I could count on the most and I just miss him every day and she would just, it was just like word soup, just constant empty words. and. The part of the story she left out, because she was good at that, is that three days before he died, she had come to my parents' house, and my mom was still on maternity leave with my brother, and she had told him that she needed two house payments. And he told her, you know what, Mom, I would love to help you, but Carol's not working, and 
we have this new baby and I just don't have the money. And she got really, really angry. And she got in his face as much as you can get in someone's face when you're four foot 11, let's be honest. And she got in his face and she said, Bill Lawrence, if you don't give me this money, I will never speak to you again. And he didn't give it to her and he died before she could ever speak to him again. But she left all that out. She just wanted to talk about how sad and lonely she was. And so pretty soon, I would get fidgety. And when I would get fidgety, she would produce treats and snacks out of her purse. Could be the cookies we made, it could be candy. But most of the time, it was Tang. Not regular Tang, off-brand Save-A-Lot Tang. (laughs) Which is even better, because it's just basically sugar, they don't really mess with the orange part. And she would produce a can of Tang, and a spoon. And as long as I would listen to this crap, I could sit and eat this crap. And so I would eat straight tang, no water, by the spoonful at the cemetery. It was sweet and kind of a little crunchy and it made huge blisters in your mouth and it like burned all the way down. But I didn't care, because you know what my mother would have done if she had seen me eating tang out of a car jar? Had a stroke which made this whole thing like more exciting. So whatever it was, and man, I was willing to sit and eat this stuff and listen to her talk. And pretty soon she'd get tired of it and we would load everything up in the car and we would get back in it and she would head back towards town and and then she would start in on the second part of our fun afternoon, which was telling me how much it meant to her that I came to visit. And she would say things like, remember, I'm like five, almost six. And she would say, you know what? I just love it when you come down here. I look forward to it all week. And if you didn't come, I just couldn't make it. I just wouldn't make it through the week if I didn't know you were going to come on the weekend. You know, and I just count on you, and I think about you all the time. And you're the thing that just keeps me going. And so I'm sitting in the passenger seat going, holy crap. I'm responsible for the life of a grown woman. And the second part of the trip home would be the don't tell anybody part, the secrets. And she'd say, now, you know, they wouldn't understand our trips to the cemetery. So it's really important that you don't tell anybody because they won't let you come down anymore. And if they don't let you come down anymore, I just don't know what'll happen. So now, my grandmother, who was the equivalent of, you know, Al-Qaeda of Madison County, Missouri, (laughs) is taking me hostage. So, I knew that my silence was what going to keep my grandmother alive, and I don't know if you've noticed this or not, but silence is like, not my thing. <laughs> not even a little bit. So we would drive into town, and I would go back in my house, and I would keep our secret all week. And all week, it would be kind of heavy, and by the time Friday rolled around, I was willing to pay the price of Sunday to have Friday and Saturday. And so this went on for a long time, and so finally my mom got better, and she started to be in a person, and she and I bought a house. Well, I didn't buy the house. I was six, almost seven. <laughs> Who'd give me a loan? No one. And, um, and it's not much has changed. And um, she would... We moved directly across the street from my grandparents. My grandpa Francis, my mom's dad, was awesome. He bought me a pony so I'd feel better about my dad dying. And we lived in town, and he tied it to our clothesline. Just telling you. <laughs> he was great. He emotionally terrorized my mother. So we're living across the street, and it's just me and mom and Brad, and now I don't want to go so much. Mom's kind of more fun, and 
My little brother's turned out to be a lot more like a monkey than I thought. And he's kind of fun and silly and fat, and he plays with stuff now. But I, I could not not go, because my grandmother would die. And I could picture the funeral, like all the family sitting there looking at me like, you didn't go, now she's dead. You know, I soon couldn't live with that amount of guilt. And I'm not Catholic. And, and we would kept this, this going. And finally, as this whole process is going on, I'm, I'm getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And pretty soon I'm the biggest kid in my class, which, you know, is every girl's dream. <laughs> and finally, my great aunt Gladys called my mom and said, I need you to come over. And when she got to the house, my aunt Gladys said, I don't know what's going on, but something is, and I think it has to do with Zul. My grandmother's name was Zola. I think it has to do with Zola, because she was well aware that my grandmother was an emotional hostage taker. And she said, you have to stop her from going down there. There is something terrible happening down there. I don't know what it is, but it has to stop. And so my mom went home, and by then she had remarried, and she talked to my step. Did I tell you the part where she remarried someone with six kids? No. Four of whom moved into our house. When she goes, she goes big. So. We go back to my, she goes home and talks to my stepdad and my stepdad has been saying the same thing all along. And so Friday comes and I get off the bus and my grandparents aren't there. And my mom says, I went in the house and said, How, you know, where's the grandparents? And she said, oh, <laughs> I forgot to tell you. You're not going down there this weekend. My mind exploded, my heart was pounding, my mind was racing and I am terrified. And she said, nope, we're going to have family fun this weekend, and you're going to stay and be a part of it, and everything's going to be great. And in my mind, I'm like, you're murdering my grandmother right now, but I can't tell her the secret. So I endured this this whole weekend. This whole weekend, I just kept waiting for the phone to ring, and my grandpa informing us that my grandmother has made a huge meal, cleaned it all up, taken off his socks, and dropped dead in the middle of the kitchen floor. But the call never came. And then... Like Wednesday rolled around and my grandma calls to see if I can come down that weekend. And she's like, not dead. She's still dialing a phone. It's a rotary dial and it took more, but she's still doing it. <laughs> and so Saturday, my parents had decided that every other weekend was kind of what we were gonna do. And so my grandmother pulls up, my grandfather, we're there to meet the bus and she looks great. She doesn't look sick. She doesn't look weakened. She looks perfectly fine and I realized that I have been duped through this whole thing. And so I go down there, and I'm angry about it all weekend, but you know, tolerated it, go home, and pretty soon, my stepdad gets a job up in St. Louis, and so we ended up moving, and that solved a lot of this problem, and it kind of faded out as we went, but the part that didn't fade out is that the, every time I went to that cemetery, and every time she bribed me to sit there, I was leaving part of that five-year-old girl at that cemetery. And every time we left, I'd buried a little bit more of who I used to be. And pretty soon, all I had left of that experience was my relationship with food, which is not good. I had learned to comfort myself by eating. I had learned to get up and sneak around and eat at night. And I would learned to fluff up the container after I ate so it looked like so much wasn't missing. And I learned all these ways to make myself feel better. But it's kind of like taking cyanide and expecting it not to kill you. So now I'm 50 years old recently. I'm dealing with it. <laughs> and 
I realized in working on the story that I am still being held hostage by someone who's been dead for 20 years because I'm still using those coping skills that I learned because as I've consumed food, food has consumed me. And even though I know this, it still kind of follows me around, like where my butt is, you know? <laughs> and I'm the one that makes the jo fat jokes before anybody else has a chance to. And I think about it when I wake up and I think about it when I go to bed and secretly in my mind, I am making up conversations for each and every one of you, for example, about what you think about me based on my weight. And I'm a prisoner to it, and I don't want to be a prisoner anymore. And I have a therapy appointment I made for myself at 9 o'clock tomorrow morning. <laughs> anyway. Going to miss that royal wedding, but I feel pretty confident they're going to rerun it. <laughs> so... I'm really working on myself, and I'm working to overcome and kind of unbury that little girl and put her back together and tell her it's okay you're not responsible for adults and that I'm only responsible for myself and that I need to treat myself well but in the back of my mind I always find myself wondering do they still make tang I sailed a wild, wild sea, climbed up a tall, tall mountain. I met an old, old man beneath the weeping willow tree. He said, now if you got some questions, go and lay them at my feet. But my time here is brief, so you'll have to pick just three. And I said, what do you do with the pieces of a broken heart? That is all for this week's episode, folks. This is M. Ward behind me now, and we just heard from Amy Brooks. Now, I want to list for you the places that Risk is coming next on June 8th. We are in Tampa, Florida. June 8th, we're in Tampa. On June 9th, we're in Orlando. On June 16th, we are in Los Angeles. On June 28th, we're back at Caveat in Manhattan and on July 17th that is our big book release date so that show at Caveat on July 17th is going to be a very special show July 20th we're in Boston technically Somerville we're still taking pitches for that one the themes are deadly or fake or innocence on July 27th, we're in San Francisco. The themes that night are What Was I Thinking, Spiritual, or Under the Influence. On August 3rd, we're in Detroit at the Magic Bag. The themes that night are Crazy, or The Stranger, or Animal. On August 10th, we're in Chicago. The themes that night are Vulnerable, or Mean, or Cover-Ups. On August 11th, Minneapolis. The themes are obsession or dirty or metamorphosis. On August 17th, Baltimore. The themes are rabbit holes, me against nature, or pride. August 18th, Washington, D.C. The themes are power, barbaric, or opposites. 
on September 6th. We're in Portland. The themes are At My Worst or Lies or Ecstasy. On September 7th, we're in Seattle. The themes are The Worst or Glorious or Breakdown. On September 8th, we're in Vancouver. The themes are Spectacle or The Rules or Full Volume. Don't forget that you can also find us at thestorystudio.org. That is our school where we teach storytelling skills to people who want to do shows like Risk or to people who want to improve their communication skills in their career around their work lives. We do a lot of corporate workshops with big, big companies like Google and Pfizer and Citibank and all. So look for us at thestorystudio.org. Folks, today's the day. Take a risk. Shepchick, there's Blythe Johnson, there's Karis Thyrus, there's Christine Fisher, and Kala Laird, there's Sarah Reed, and Ruby Roberts, there's Jeff Barr again, and Ramsey Kalsa Duke again, there's Cameron Smith, and Chris Burkett, there's Cora Cretanand, and Renee Cannon, there's Emma Oshrin, there's Nathan Bliss, there's Dana Stansbury, and Paul Flagg. Okay, that's it.